Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I'm glad that you're all here today. I want to start by giving a plug for the Pakistan Refugee Committee, their comedy night, which is uh, this upcoming Saturday night here at Seoul. Tickets are $20 in advance or $25 at the door, and you can get your tickets online, or you can go. There's a table out there. Afterwards, on your way out, you can uh, talk to the hosts there, and they can actually register you right away. Again, the proceeds for this is to help us uh, bring a family into Canada whose lives are in literal danger. And uh, we are over halfway there right now with our goals. So we want to ask you, your friends, your neighbors, your life group, show up for a great night of laughs, for a great cause. Our uh, feature headliner is Matt Falk. Here's just a little teaser. Watch the screens. Like even the pagan gods of yesteryear demanded a sacrifice, he had to pull the toenail from an old guy or something like that, I don't remember. But knocking on wood, some people don't even knock on wood, they just say knock on wood. Haven't been sick all year, knock on wood. What, are you trying to trick the gods now? What are you doing? I think they're up there going, did you get Peter sick? No, 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 he knocked on wood. Did you see him physically knock on the wood? If that's true, you know it can't be that easy. There's got to be some sort of loophole. You're going to get sick, die, get to heaven, be like, what happened, God? I knocked on what? He's just going to look at you. No, 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 you knocked on oak. <laughs> remember, knock on oak, that's a joke. Knock on pine, you're feeling fine. That's the rhyme. You're a moron. I'm going to tell you. Yeah. So, Falk is hilarious. So, if... I would, really would encourage you to be able to, to keep uh, Saturday night open. Also, there's a table by the elevator, Women's Retreat Weekend. Um, at the end of the gathering, ladies, uh, it's a great way to get connected with other ladies in the church. Encourage you to go and just to check it out. So, here we are, Book of Matthew. So, I was doing some research because we're almost finished. I have one more Sunday, which is next week, Baptism Sunday. Because we started studying this book on November 27th, 2016. Just thought I'd throw it out there. And next week it will be finished. So I want to begin my life lesson today by asking a question. Have you ever attended a wedding where based on what you knew about those getting married, you sort of thought to yourself, ah, it won't last. Okay, what a way to start a life lesson. Just crickets and no response. Okay, let me rephrase the question. Have you ever attended a funeral based on what you knew about one who died and you thought to yourself, ah, it won't last? Well, probably not. Okay, so two bad jokes. Here's the third one. All right, I heard a story of a man whose wife was constantly irritated with him. She was actually quite a rather unpleasant woman, so the two of them decided to take a trip to Jerusalem, visit the Holy Land, and while they were there, she suddenly dies. So the undertaker now steps in, tells the husband, he says, look, I can ship her home for you, but it's going to cost you 10 grand. Or you can just simply bury her here in the Holy Land for $150. The guy thought about it for a while, and then he looked at the undertaker and said, look, I'd rather that you would just ship her home, please. And the undertaker just goes, what? He goes, why would you spend over 10 grand to ship your wife home when you could have a wonderful, beautiful little uh, ceremony here and bury here for just $150? Guy looked at the undertaker. He said, you know, long ago a man died here. He was buried, and three days later he rose from the dead, and I just can't take that chance. Okay, so it's a joke. Just loosen up. There we are. I want to speak about the funeral that didn't last. 
And uh, we've realized that uh, this is really what Matthew's been building uh, regarding to a climax. And he's, what he's doing is he's proving the claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It started way back in uh, November 27th and, uh, 2016 and it ends next week. And this is what Matthew has been trying to prove. And so last week what we did is we actually participated in communion and it was a reminder that on the cross that Jesus died as our substitute. He paid the penalty of our sins on his own body. And it's Jesus' death that brought about the possibility of a renewed relationship with God. And yet, as central as Jesus' death is to all that we believe, teach about salvation, without the resurrection, we would have no salvation. Somebody once asked, you know, Jesus' victory uh, over death at the cross or the resurrection, which one is it? And Paul actually looks at that. He actually answers that question in 1 Corinthians 15, where he corrects the church that had become so confused there um, that there were even people in the church who were denying the resurrection. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And so what we look at at uh, the most pivotal point of history and in the scripture is that we have the cross and we have resurrection. And what we realize is that they are actually mutually dependent on each other. It's not one or the other. They're dependent on each other. And Jesus died not just to take sin, but he also wanted to prove a point. And that he's also capable of uh, taking the sin and removing it. That he is God. That he is the Messiah. And the cross deals with the sin. And the resurrection deals with death. But both actions are dependent upon both events. You can't have one without the other. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the central, um, is central to God's message of salvation. It's the basis, when you think about it, of our faith and hope in God for eternal life. That's what the resurrection is about. And with that in mind, we might think that Matthew would give us every possible detail and every post-resurrection appearance Jesus made. Yet Matthew's approach to writing this uh, is very simply from a perspective of some women who first discovered the wonderful news. And then he proves the fact of the resurrection by the action of Jesus' enemies. When you read the Gospels. When you take your Bible and you open it to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have them all out side by side, you're going to notice that there are what people would say, well, there's some discrepancies here in the Scriptures. Because the four Gospels accounts give different details about the events of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Mark, you see that Mark reports that there were three women at the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. In our text in Matthew, it only speaks of two. Some critics have deem these to be, well, they're contradictions. Well, that's not the case. Put it this way. If you have four members of a band, you told them to write stories about what life was like on the road with maybe a you know, famous lead singer or one of the musicians that they traveled with, what you do is that when you would read their stories, we would see a whole lot of overlap. But you would also see some vari variation on the same story. People see the same things differently. And first of all, the differences, when we look at the Gospels, prove that there was no collusion, you know, or getting the story straight. But rather, the Gospel writers give different perspectives of the various witnesses to the events of the resurrection. 
They're not contradictions. They are, they are different details that we can piece together to gain a greater understanding of what actually took place. And as we study the Gospels, the core questions to consider really comes down to one is, who was Jesus? That's the most important question that we have to ask. And each gospel writer writes to a different audience. Each gospel writer adds his own personality to the writing and explains the variations in their accounts. And in spite of this, there are some truths that are very certain in all the gospels. Without question, we see that Jesus lived a sinless life. We see that Jesus died and he rose from the dead on the third day, just as he said. We see that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And the other detail that is certain is that all Gospels agree how people responded to Jesus determines whether they live or die eternally. So we pick it up in Matthew 28. First verse says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went back to look at the tomb. Now, it's towards sunrise of the first day of the week, which is considered our Sunday. Jesus had been in the grave for three days. Now, in Eastern culture, a part of the day was counted as a whole day. Uh, so Friday was day one. That's when he entered the tomb. Saturday, all day he's there. Sunday is now day three. It's been about 11 hours since Sabbath ended at dusk. And so now it's early in the morning. The sun is just starting to lighten up the eastern sky. That's where we find ourselves here. Mary Magdalene, she has this supreme devotion to Jesus ever since he cast seven demons out of her. The other Mary mentioned is the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Clopas. These two Marys are specifically named also at being at the cross when Jesus had died. And both Marys had been present, again, at Jesus' burial on Friday. And these women come to the garden to look at the grave. And according to Luke, right, they also come with more burial spices, which they had prepared. Mark records that they walked to the tomb, and they, as they were walking, they had some questions on their mind, one of which was, who's going to roll away the stone that blocked the entrance? Because obviously we can't do it. So what we see is that these women are coming back to the tomb with an act of love and devotion. But may I also suggest to you, it was also an act that shows their unbelief. See, they didn't go to the grave of Jesus to see if he was resurrected. But they purposely went to the grave of Jesus to anoint his dead body with more spices. Scripture says there's a violent earthquake. And the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back. The stone sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. So we have to ask the question, why did God have the angel roll the stone away? And why through an earthquake? It's interesting because Matthew is the only one in the gospel writers who mentions the second earthquake. We, we read about the first earthquake when Jesus died, but here is the second one. And first of all, I'm wondering if this earthquake made sure that everyone was wide awake to see what was happening. Because it ensures the claim that would be made later that the guards were asleep. It ensures that that, that can't be true. Look, there's an earthquake you know, as a person with personal experience of an earthquake, which happened when you were while we were in Victoria, I can assure you when an earthquake is severe enough to move heavy stones, everybody's awake. It's just what's going to happen. It also became the means by which God, not man, broke Roman seal. Remember, 
Pilate had the, the tomb sealed. No matter how great, how glorious man's power may seem to himself, it's nothing before God, and it wasn't an issue for God. But again, why have the angel roll away the stone? Maybe because he needed to let Jesus out? I think that that's the first thing that we, we, we go to, but as the various post-resurrection appearances of Jesus demonstrates and tells us, Jesus' resurrected body was not bound by the same material space limitations that you and I are. As a matter of fact, he was able to appear in a room full of disciples without the door being opened. You can read it in John. He could be touched and he could eat. Again, we read that in John. The comparison of the various accounts implies that Jesus was already out of the tomb before the stone was rolled away. May I suggest to you that the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the women and later the disciples in. The angel sat on top of the stone that he had rolled away. He becomes the divine answer to the woman's concern. Who's going to roll away the stone? Well, it's already done for us. Matthew describes the angel as, as dazzling. The whole scene has this dramatic effect on those who are, who are there to see it. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like them. In other words, they passed out. They're struck with fear. The earthquake, earthquake, the earthquake would have been scary enough for anybody. They would have been somewhat jittery uh, that, you know, anyway, since there, there was a strong earthquake just a couple of days earlier, right? Now there, there's another one, and now they have a secondary fear, a fear of an angel, the fear of the supernatural. The word shake used to describe the guards is the same word, root word is earthquake. And so it, 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 in a sense, the earth had been shaken when the angel did his work. And now the guards are shaken because they can see the angel. And the fear that they have is so great that they pass out. And here in our text, we find that the angel now reveals himself. And what does he do? He wants to bring comfort to the women. Don't be afraid, he says, for I, know, you know, for, uh, for, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Well, while the soldiers were frozen in fear, the angel brings assurance and comfort to the women. Simply, don't be afraid. There was, there's, there was a lot that would cause fear, but relief from that fear came from the angel, which had frightened them. He's not going to harm them. It's a supernatural experience. It's a wow moment. In fact, he knew why these women came, and he gently, in his way, gives them guidance. And so the angel is the first announcement of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, he's not here, he is risen. Come, just as he said, see the place where he lay. And so now the tomb is open so that they could see for themselves, and that the angel himself is now telling the truth. Jesus is no longer there. He has risen just as he said. And God's grace had come to mankind in a new and very powerful way. And the woman, women were not rebuked for their unbeliefs. They weren't rebuked for bringing burial spices. But rather they're comforted and they're encouraged that what they had dared not to believe was now true. Jesus conquered death by proving all of his promises were true. They would have to be in awe. This was not news that they were going to keep to themselves either, that they were told to go and go tell others. Go tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you 
into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid and yet filled with joy, the Bible says. And they ran to tell the disciples. So they have this mixture of emotions as they hurry back to to Jerusalem to report what they have just seen, what they have just heard, what they have just experienced. And and fear was still present simply because of the overwhelming nature of the supernatural experiences that it had on them. You got this excitement, but you got this crazy fear. There's this great joy because of what they have been told by the angel, but their joy would also go on to explode. Because suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, they said. They came to him, clasped at his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they'll see me. Again, repeating what the angel said. Basically, his greeting is just like saying, good morning. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It was that, it was that casual. He, did, like, he didn't make this huge triumph announcement. He said, yeah, you know, good morning, greetings. It puts them at ease. It doesn't startle the, these women. And immediately when he said that, they recognized who he was. They fall before him. They take hold of his feet. They begin to worship him. And, and the bowing and the taking hold of his feet is an act of humility. It brought on assurance. And now, now, not only have they heard him and they have seen him, they have now touched him. He was real. He was tangible. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a figment of their imagination. And Jesus repeated the same command from the angel. Meet me in Galilee. He's raised from the dead. It was a wow moment. And in this simple account, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. It was in a tangible, physical body. Matthew does not leave proof of the resurrection here. As a matter of fact, as he goes on to write, he begins to reveal the activity of Jesus' enemies. And by doing so, he then demonstrates that even his enemies attested to his physical resurrection by the way they responded. And that was Matthew's side of the story. Because while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. First notice that this takes place at the same time that the women are returning from the tomb. Because apparently after the guards have regained consciousness, that some of them go back to Jerusalem. And there's several reasons for this. First, the guards had been frightened out of their wits, right? But you got another earthquake and now you see something supernatural. You see an angel. And it's quite doubtful that all of them were all still together. As a matter of fact, they probably scattered. It's also true, though, if they did stay together, they would have attracted Pilate's attention when they arrived back in Jerusalem. And that is really something that they wanted to avoid. They didn't want to get their boss mad at them. But it's interesting because when we go back into Matthew chapter 26, we see that they were placed under the authority of the chief priests. So they needed to report to the chief priests, not to Pilate. So it's reasonable that that's why they went there. So these soldiers, they're under oath. They're under orders to guard the tomb on the third day. That's what they were supposed to do. And they would have been in grave danger of Pilate putting to death for failure to accomplish their mission in guarding the tomb and abandoning their post. That's not what you want to do as a soldier. So some of the guards run to the chief priests and they tell the priests... All that happened. They don't make anything up. Isn't that interesting? 
They didn't make any excuses for themselves. They are risking their lives no matter what they did. And for if the chief priest didn't believe them and became angry, they could have had the soldiers put to death for negligence of duty. The soldiers, though, they came, they told the truth to their best defense. So they told them all that had occurred about the earthquake and the angel and now the missing body of Jesus. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. Telling them here to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were asleep. If this report, now look what they say, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. So the Jews call the, the elders, the, the Sanhedrin, to assemble. They figure out a plan. How are we going to deal with this situation? Now notice, there's no questioning of the soldiers. They're not questioning the soldiers, hey, what happened? Their story, the soldier's story, is taken at face value to be truth. This lack of challenge to the soldier's story demonstrates, I believe, that the Sanhedrin believed the soldiers. And it would seem that this would have shaken them, you would think. You would think that the, all these people involved, the soldiers and the Sanhedrin, would repent on the spot, demonstrating that Jesus' claims were true. But instead, they, they simply come up with a plan. Let's bribe the soldiers. Let's assist them in lying about the situation. This is our damage control measure. This is something that we have to keep in mind as we share the good news of Jesus to other people. You can't argue people into the kingdom of God. You can't say, oh, i got my atheist friend coming over our house and you lock the doors until they convert. You can't do that. You can't overpower them with all the facts that prove Jesus' claims. Because when somebody re rejects Jesus, they also reject the truth and the claim, its claim over their own lives. They willfully and knowingly hold on to what is not true simply because it's what they want to believe. Paul describes this condition in, in Romans chapter 1 in several ways, including by saying they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's built into us. And so the soldiers go from this nearly hopeless situation of no matter what they do, they'll lose their lives for negligence of duty to what they seem like a win-win. The chief priests, instead of being mad at them and demanding their lives, make a deal where they will both be protected from anything. Anything that Pilate may want to do to them. And everybody's paid out in a handsome form of money. Now, the deal kind of looks good for those who reject God. But we've got to go back to what Jesus' words were. Matthew chapter 16. What will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul. When you think about those words and this situation, no matter what price was paid for the soldiers to lie about what they had seen, it wasn't enough to cover the cost of their souls. Which becomes condemned. Why? Because of their willful rejection of what they knew to be true. They knew this to be true. Jesus Christ had conquered death and came out of the tomb. Now remember, it only says some. So there's always quite a possibility that there are other soldiers who had a transforming moment. But here we have the attempt to cover up the resurrection of Jesus with a lie. And it didn't work anyway. The account of the bribe uh, of the lie is found out. It's reported. You know, 
uh, the very attempt to cover up the truth became another testimony to it. And all the chief priests and elders would have to do is prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All they had to do was really produce his body. But they knew they couldn't because Jesus was no longer dead. He's not here. He is risen. So here we are talking about the resurrection. And what is your personal response to the resurrection of Jesus? See, the, I, the early disciples uh, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They couldn't forget the open tomb. They couldn't forget his pierced hands and, and feet and wounded side. The living Jesus had a powerful and profound effect on them. The people who went to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning were testifying to the power of the resurrection. They were in awe. They were in wonder. It was like a whoosh experience. And the resurrection of Jesus itself is never described anywhere in Scripture, presumably because nobody saw Jesus exit from the tomb on that first Easter morning. But many experienced it. No one can explain the resurrection, but we can feel its effects. And so as you sit here today, does the resurrection affect you? The earth felt the effects. We read about that. There was a violent earthquake. It shook. The ground moved. The rocks erupted. Nature was aroused. The earth trembled in sorrow at the crucifixion of Jesus, but now it leaps for joy at his resurrection. The quake attests to a cosmic significance of this event. Creation moves. The angel felt the effects. It's kind of like watching an action hero on Saturday morning cartoons, you know, shafts of light coming out off him, you know, his clothes are shimmering, and he rolls away the stone not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in. And the angel sat on the rock that had been rolled away, indicating this triumph of the completed work. Kind of like just, hey, I'm there, look, look at it. And the guards, what happens? They feel the effect. They shook in their sandals. You know, they probably shook longer than the ground was shaking. They were scared stiff. They passed out. The women show up. They feel the effects. They come to anoint a body with spices and to give it a more appropriate embalming. And then uh, on the way there, they're trying to figure out, who, okay, who's going to roll the tomb, the, the stone away for us? And, they, you know, on seeing the stone rolled away, the open tomb, hearing the angel proclaim that Jesus isn't there, that he's been raised, they're filled with wonder. They're filled with joy. The good news of his resurrection became their message to share with everybody. They are those first messengers. Everyone present, when you look at this story, that day felt the effect of the resurrection. They felt a whoosh. It went right through them. So what, does, what effect does the resurrection have on you? When you contemplate the resurrection, does, does it move you? You know, we can celebrate Easter. We can celebrate the resurrection and not be moved. Or can we? You know, we're well adjusted in our same old world, aren't we not? I think that's why Matthew sort of reminds us that the whole earth shook on that morning. Luke goes on record that the first Easter meal was 
Sunday evening with Jesus. Isn't that cool? Guy's always eating. John has the resurrected Jesus encountering Mary Magdalene in the garden. But Matthew, what about him? What's significant in his story? Easter is an earthquake with a stone rolled away from the tomb and a dead person walking in the streets with an angel sitting on that stone. I've been in an earthquake, as I said. It wasn't a big one, but nonetheless, it was an earthquake. The house shook, and we literally felt it roll right through us. It was bizarre. And believe me, when the building shaked, we thought it was actually, I actually thought it was a semi backing up on a driveway. And we didn't know what happened at first. And so what do you do? Your eyes are all popped open. Everybody stops. Everything's rattling. And you're just sort of, you're frozen. You're looking. And what do we do? We go outside. We're trying to figure out what caused the building to tremble. Later, of course, we learned that, the, that, that this earthquake, this minor earthquake, just took place off of uh, Sydney, British Columbia. The resurrection is an earthquake that shook the whole world. It's gotten everybody's attention. And on the cross, the world did all it could to Jesus. But at the resurrection, God did all he could to the world. And the earth shook. You don't explain that. You experience it. You feel it. It goes right through you. Whoosh. When the stone is rolled away, that, that entombed Jesus, the, the, and the earth shook, we got our first glimpse of this new world. It's a world where death doesn't have the last word anymore, where injustice is now made right, and innocent suffering is now vindicated by the intrusion of a powerful God. The soldiers shook. And not because the ground was rumbling. The, the angel plops himself down on the stone. It was like a final act of being an impudent defiance, right, of death. He tells the women, hey, you don't need to be afraid. He's not here. Nobody went back the same way. They, they came. Jesus has that kind of effect on moving on people. Does it have that effect on you? And if not, maybe, maybe this Today, you need to check your spiritual pulse. Maybe it's time to see and feel the resurrection of Jesus all over again. Maybe it's actually time to let God shake your world. Have you thought about that? Maybe it's time to allow God to roll the stone away from our cold and hardened heart to feel the love and the power of Jesus. Whoosh. The resurrection should not only move us, it should be touching something deep down inside of us. We need to encounter God's wonder. The feeling of surprise and awe aroused by something strange and unexpected. It's what Mary and, and the other Mary felt when they learned that Jesus was written. They departed from the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. They're astonished. They went to the tomb expecting to find a dead man in need of bombing. Instead, they found an empty tomb. And that Jesus was alive, the fact, while strange and unexpected, it was wonderful and exciting. One can't experience the resurrection. You can't read it without wonder. And the trouble is, even in our culture, we don't wonder anymore. Wonder is rare, especially as we grow older. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from older Christians, you know, I've been there, done that. In regards to their spiritual life. What I suggest is maybe that we're spiritually 
and emotionally dull. You know, our culture as a people, we're saturated with analysis and explanations, right, to all of our experiences. We're void of wonder. And it's that wonder and it's that mystery of the resurrection, when you think about it, that we want. Why? Because when God touches us, you know it. When God reaches down and touches us, we know it and we can't explain it, but rather we actually experience it and you feel it and it's as if it goes right through you. Whoosh. May I present to you today that your life is like this vase. It's pretty nice, eh? Got it all together. Looks pretty. Wants to be pretty. Wants to hold on to pretty things. However, you and I, just like everybody else, were brought into this world as a baby. However, we think we're perfect. We think we're flawless. But we're really not. Because we're brought into this world with something called sin. And it affects every one of us. And we're broken. And so even as a baby, we're faced with brokenness. And, and actually, that is the sin nature. That's where we start. You come into the world broken. And then life happens where you get hurt, where maybe you get abused, where you get rejected. Maybe you experience failure, tragedy. And before you know it, Your life looks like this. Just a bunch of broken pieces. And you know what most of us try to do with our lives? We, we try to take our pieces. And we, we, we try to put our pieces back together. And when you play with broken shards of anything... <clears throat> there's obviously a good chance that you're going to get cut or, or hurt even more. And so what do we do? We try to fix things ourselves, right? And, you know, maybe we get glue, right? And we try to, you ever try to glue stuff together? Or, or, or duct tape if you're really into red-green. And we, we try to duct tape stuff, but it just doesn't seem to want to hold and it's never the same because it's a mess. But we try to fix ourselves. 
And most of us, we, we actually try to fix ourselves, but in reality, we can't. And so because we can't do that, what people will do then is that they begin to medicate and then some simply try to ignore maybe their brokenness. But we can't do that either. And so we try to put our pieces of a puzzle back together, but the only thing that happens is that when we try, it, it fails. It just, it just falls back. And I can't, I can't get it back. And we try a number of different paths, and the results are always the same. And some people just give up, and then they ex just accept the brokenness in their life. And they just accept, well, this is how I'm going to live. And they walk around depressed and upset and angry and bitter and empty and forlorn, if I could say that. Whatever you want to use in there. And some, instead of being the victim, some become victimizers now because they're not going to let anybody get the best of them anymore. So they'll take advantage of other people. But here's the difference. Jesus does things a little differently from how we would do it. And so here, how, this is how God comes now into the picture. And the, the, the moment that everything actually changes. And this is where the power of the hope of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus begins to change everything. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sins. You know, he didn't say, you know, look at me, world, you're forgiven. No, he said, well, basically, he takes these broken pieces. And they were on his hands and they were on his feet. They were on his head. There's also the irony of the whip that was used to flog him before he was crucified. The cat of nine tails. I talked about it last week. It had broken pieces of pottery woven into it that would be used against him and his back. And these pieces of pottery would lash against the flesh and rip it off. So that all that would be exposed is flesh and muscle. Across his back, those stripes. And yet the Bible says that by his stripes we are healed. And that was him taking our broken pieces. And not judging us for them, but not looking at you with angry eyes and saying, I'll take this because I have to, thanks a lot. No, rather Jesus took our brokenness on his back, on his body, he took our brokenness, our sin, our addiction, our abuse, our anxiety, whatever it may be. The moment that you were taken advantage of, God was taking your brokenness from you and taking it upon himself. And, and, and he was taking what we deserve, but he didn't want us to have uh, because God sees us in a completely different way. And everything, everything that was meant to bury you instead was buried with Jesus in the tomb. You need to know that today. He took all that with him, on him, into the tomb. Because there's an enemy that wants you and I to be broken and to live a miserable life. But you don't have to give in to that because today is a day of victory. It's a day where everything changes because everything, was, everything that was meant for you no longer do you have to take upon yourself. And so what does Jesus do? He 
He takes these broken pieces upon himself into the tomb with him. Bible says he was dead there for three days. We don't know exactly what took place, but we do know he did business. There was no fight with the devil in the tomb. You know? But what we do know is he began to take everything off. He would take off the addiction. Take off the lust. Take off the abuse. Take off the broken relationships. He would take off the alcoholism. He would take off the anxiety. He would take off the suicidal thoughts. You name it, he gave it. He gave it all back to the devil when he was doing business in hell. Saying, hey, it's, this is yours. And you lose. And I, I took it all and now the people that you're trying to take out, they're going to experience victory. The very brokenness that was meant to destroy you and me was buried in the grave with Jesus. It's not a part of who you are. And all we have to do when you think about it is to accept the work that he has done for us and to place our faith in him. And many times, you know, we think that we, we have everything together. We have to have everything together before we go to Jesus. But that's not the case. That's not what he's asking. He's saying, you're a mess. Just come to me. And Jesus does, just doesn't want to give and fix your brokenness. Instead, he wants to give you a new life. He wants to give you a brand new you. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that if anybody is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Ephesians 2.10 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. goes on to say, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, but rather this is the gift of God. Not by works so that nobody can boast, right? For we are now God's handiwork. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And sometimes I wonder if we have forgotten the implications of a man rising from the dead. Are we so caught up in the reality of life around us that we have no place for mystery anymore in our lives? Have we become so religious that we have lost the wonder? Have we forgotten what it feels like to have God remove the darkness and coldness in our heart caused by sin so that the light of glory can invade our souls and set us free? Are we too starting to forget what God feels like? For me, there have been times where 
Even when my childlike sense of wonder has faded, I get bogged down in duty and effort and in analysis. But I'm certain I'm not alone in this, this, this experience because in, in our culture, wonderless living's the norm. Easter and the resurrection is just another Sunday with perhaps we bought some new clothes. So how do we revive the sense of wonder? Because wonder begins in the presence of Jesus. Regardless of our geography, our status, our age, where the Holy Spirit is present, that place is alive with wonder. As we become more aware of God's presence, we become more filled with wonder. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they felt it. It was the whoosh that went right through them. When they saw Jesus, their only response was what? To fall at his feet and worship. And when you and I encounter Jesus, our only response is to celebrate his presence. That's the resurrection. That's Easter. It's the presence of Jesus that should be moving us and to touch us deeply. It's, it's the rocking experience of Jesus' triumph and the relational experience of Jesus' presence in our lives. It becomes an experience to imagine that God will be present in our lives to roll the stone away from our hearts. The resurrection should make us want to fall at Jesus' feet in gratitude and praise for what he has done. That, my friends, that is something you don't explain. That is something you never forget. It is something that we experience and you feel it. It goes through you. Whoosh. So how do you respond to Jesus? You know, we're going to be like the women and and worship Jesus? Are we going to be like the religious leaders and continue to refuse to believe in spite of all the evidence presented to us? Because Jesus, the risen Jesus, is still alive today. And he's able to come to you and I spiritually. He's able to speak to us in our times of confusion and sadness. We sang about that already. In times of failure, in times of fear. And if you don't know him personally, he's able to come and save you by his grace. That's beautiful. That's so whoosh. And maybe today you're, you're here this morning, you're going, I need that new, that new life that you're talking about. I need something brand new. I'll just say this. Christianity minus the resurrection is insanity. That's Jesus' light. You have to have both. The cross and the resurrection. And it's with the resurrection that Jesus becomes the hope for all humanity. He becomes your hope. He becomes your answer for our brokenness. It's a resurrection that gives us the assurance that yes, Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life. And the Bible tells us that we can't even get to heaven or to the Father except through Him. And today God has prepared a clear path for us to come to him to experience his amazing grace, his amazing forgiveness, his amazing love. Who wants a brand new life? Who wants a brand new life? Maybe that's you. I don't know if you know, but I'm passionate about it. Met somebody after the first gathering. I was introduced by their friend who said they just had a whoosh. 
Spirit encountered this person. And if that's you, if you're here, you just need that brand new life. If that's you, you've never done this. What I ask for you to do is three simple steps that will help you make a decision to receive the brand new life that God has for you today. The first one is simply confess. Confess, admit that you're broken. Confess that you have sinned against God. Confess that Jesus is God, that he is not dead, but that he's alive. A simple confession. We can all easily do that. An acknowledgement of who Jesus is. The second one is repent. And I hate how our culture has taken that word and put such a negative meaning and connotation on it in our culture. And I, I know why, because there are a lot of idiots out there, you know, who are yelling and screaming at people, you know, to turn or burn, trust or crust or repent or you're going to hell. And I don't think that's how Jesus would actually communicate repentance. He said it very simply. He said, go and sin no more. And repentance is actually a very simple word. It means when you're walking in one way and it isn't working for you, you have sin in your life, there's brokenness, and, and Jesus reveals himself to you as you're walking in some way, shape, or form. And because of that, we are able to stop in that direction that we are headed. We are now able to look at Jesus. We're able to say, God, I'm sorry. I need you to fix me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me a new life. I need you to leave me. And then you make a 180 degree turn about in your life and you begin to follow Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's a lifestyle of keeping yourself humble and open before God because after you come to Jesus, you're gonna mess up again, right? You know, I'll promise you that. But living with the heart of repentance and humility means that we can come to God, we can ask him for forgiveness, we can ask him to help us, and he will. And we keep moving in the direction that he's leading us. And the third step, the third step is the easy one. That's just following Jesus. It's, we follow his word, we read the scripture. God puts people in our lives that help us to follow him. But Jesus is the one who we are following, not man. And so today, if that is you, I'm going to invite all of us just to bow our heads. And just, I want you to pray along with me. Jesus, I'm broken, but you died so that I might find healing. You were rejected so I could be fully accepted. I choose life now in your powerful name. Forgive me of my sin. I surrender to you as Lord of my life. Help me to follow you. I refuse to listen to the lies of the enemy anymore. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord of my life. If you've prayed that prayer, you can do a couple of things. We actually want you to let us know because we want... We want, you to, we want to be able to help you on your journey. And so the number, a real easy way is to text the word soul to the number that's up on the screen. We have people on the other end of there, uh, Pastor Joanne, who would love to answer your questions and pray with you. But there's also somebody on the cross to my right, Pastor Andrew. He's got a little book called Our Next Steps with Jesus in a New Testament that will help you in this new journey. And just after the gathering, after I give the blessing, if you just want to go to him and tell him your name, he'll gladly, freely give you this gift. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever want that whoosh? 
lift your foot in the air like if you're able to. Like you're going to take another step, but don't put it down just yet. Feel the unbalance. And as I pray, just do as the prayer tells you as we go through it. And gracious God, we are here ready to take that next step. And we know that it's risky. We know that there's a, we're a little off balance and we, we don't know where it's going to lead. But we trust you. We trust you to put our foot down. Just one step closer than when we came in here this morning. We ask that this morning we, we'd remember that we came here today to take one step closer to you. And if that can happen, then I know it will be a great day. My prayer is that you'd raise up people to follow you, to be humble, to be caring, to love you, and can't do anything else. I pray that you would reinstill the wonder, the whoosh of your resurrection to our lives, that, that you are the great shepherd, that you are working in our lives to break us, to, to be useful, and to take us to do so much more than we ever thought we could ever imagine. May you be our glory and our joy. May you give us strength and wisdom and discernment and a love for people. And Father, there are a lot of sheep here today. They need, uh, there's need for more people to shepherd and care. May we always look in the mirror and ask ourselves, you know, do we love you? And may we answer yes and then begin to move ahead and to do the work that you've laid out before us. God, my prayer for our church is that you would move through us like an earthquake to reinstall wonder of who you are in our lives and to reach the world around us. In ancient times, one who blessed extended his hand for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing before you go, here it is. May God who created you from love and for love heal and bless you may you be embraced in the tenderness of his mercies. May Jesus who died for you lift the burden of pain from your heart and take it to himself. And may the spirit comfort and strengthen your trust and your love. And may you find peace in the love of the people of God, forgiving its brokenness, understanding its frailty and trusting its fragility so that you can once again find in the if find in the midst of a people a place that you can call home. So now soul sanctuary. Go and live the church. Amen.